deep down in my heart, I know that like that's what I want to be doing. I want to be creating. I want to be like writing music all the time. And um, the teaching stuff wasn't necessarily a negative thing because I, I met a lot of amazing people and I think I helped a lot of people, but it wasn't maybe my true passion, my true path that I I knew I was supposed to be on. What's up, everybody? Happy to have you joining me for the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Keith Billick here. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, Keith sounds kind of tired today. I hope he's okay. Uh, I assure you I am okay, but I can assure you with even more confidence that I am very tired. I've been very busy, but it's all been good stuff. I've, I went to, on Memorial Day weekend, I was over in Maryland attending Dell Fest uh, doing interviews and enjoying the music and, and just having a good time. And then just this weekend, I have just gotten back from Midwest Banjo Camp, also doing interviews. So I think I've recorded probably seven interviews in the last week and a half. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit drained from that, but also really excited to share those with you in the coming weeks and months. Another thing I've been made aware of recently is a new fashion trend that is sweeping the nation and this of course is people wearing their picky fingers t-shirts while on stage at uh dell fest i saw alex berman from the dirty grass players wearing his on stage and of course killing it at midwest banjo camp scott anderson was wearing his on stage while he played along with uh alan mundy and of course sounded great and then just last night, I saw that Dan from the band The Millbillies won their John Hartford Festival band contest while he was wearing that t-shirt. So, you know, I, I can see why it's catching on. It's obviously the best way to channel all of your banjo powers, not to mention looking very cool while doing it. So head over to banjopodcast.com. That's where you can get your very own official Picky Fingers t-shirt. And if you are the kind of person who likes stickers for your banjo case or for your neighbor's car, you can get those too and further amplify your banjo powers. So check it out. That's banjopodcast.com. Now, of course, the ultimate way to unlock the maximum banjo achievement is to head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and actually become a monthly supporter of the show. Today's very special supporter of the episode is Bill Kinsella. Bill was a student and big fan of Bennett Sullivan's and made the uh, effort to email me to specifically recommend that Bennett get an interview to appear on an episode. Now, Bennett uh, would have definitely deserved an episode in his own right, but it never hurts to have one of the Patreon supporters in your corner. So, Bill, thank you so much for your support and also for your excellent suggestion to have uh, this episode's guest. Once again, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast. You can also email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com always love hearing your comments suggestions critiques and you can email me photos of you killing it on stage wearing your picky finger shirt
Today's featured guest is Bennett Sullivan, a fantastic banjo performer, composer, and educator. And if I'm honest, this was a hard interview to prepare for because Bennett has done so many interesting things and his music career has taken a lot of interesting turns. And it was just, it was a lot to fit in, but I think we did a good job and of course needed to cover his own compositions and creative process. So I I think it's all fascinating and I was really happy that Bennett was able to share that with us. So here it is. Enjoy the interview with Bennett Sullivan. from Greensboro, North Carolina originally, but I live in Pisgah Forest, North Carolina, which is about 30 minutes outside of Asheville. I became a banjo player in late middle school. I think it was around seventh or eighth grade. Mm-hmm. In Greensboro, I had a couple high school buddies that were picking up instruments around the same time. I was playing guitar a little bit, and my dad got a banjo in the house because he wanted to learn, huh. and I started picking up the instrument because it was just sitting there and he wasn't really playing it. And he, he saw that I was attracted to it and I, I started taking lessons and started playing with guys in North Carolina, um, two guys named Eric Robertson, who goes by Rick Robertson now. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, he's, he's a good buddy. He was my best friend in high school. Um, we were inseparable. We were known as, uh, I don't know, the, the inseparable bluegrass guys <laughs> of our art school. You know, we would skip skip class and just play tunes, and, and uh-huh. yeah, that was our that was our life in high school. And Ryan Stanford, who uh, also he still lives in Greensboro, he, he's an aerospace engineer now and um, super smart guy, an amazing guitar player and bass player. So we had this little bluegrass power trio. Maybe someday Ryan will make something of himself and you know join yeah. the full time bluegrass <laughs> crew. Yeah, right. For someone from Michigan, I don't have a perspective. Was that unusual for people that age to be into bluegrass, or or was that a kind of a freaky thing? I mean, I remember feeling special because I didn't know anybody else that played banjo. At least my other friends uh-huh. that played banjo were like in their forties or fifties. You know, they were sure. kind of mentors to me in a way. So I didn't really know any other anybody else except when you go to like fiddlers conventions around North Carolina, like Mount Airy or Galax in Virginia you see other kids that are playing, other kids that are playing really well. Yeah. But in a city like Greensboro, you're not really used to, you're not really used to that. You don't see that very much. Well, you, you just mentioned that you had some people who you considered mentors. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you learn? I mean, your, your dad had this thing, but how did you progress? It sounds like maybe you did have some sort of mentorship situation. I was a, a member of an organization in North Carolina called High Lonesome Strings, and they're still going strong. Um, hmm. They're at IBMA every year. And um, I would go to jam sessions with my dad and meet other players there. They would throw little, High Lonesome Strings would throw little festivals. And so I'd go there, and there's a guy that, um, his name sticks out to me in this moment. His name is Danny Bowers, and he was an amazing multi-instrumentalist, great bluegrass player on like every instrument uh-huh. and singer too. And uh, if if you know, he's one of these kind of deep cut dudes in North Carolina. That if you're from like Central North Carolina, you kind of you know who Danny Bowers is. Okay, yeah. Um, he uh, he was definitely an inspiration to me, and he was really encouraging. And um, I took lessons from Craig Smith as well in Winston-Salem. Oh, nice. 
He, of course, yeah, one of the one of the best right there. Yeah. Do you remember the things, like some things that he taught you that maybe were really important and you being able to progress quickly? You know, I don't remember anything in particular. I remember sitting there and just being in awe of his guitar playing, really. Like hmm. his banjo playing is amazing, obviously. I like I love his his one record that he put out, but all the stuff yeah. that he did with um Summer Wages and Laurie Lewis, like um that stuff is amazing. But I would I don't remember like anything in particular. You know, he would teach me tunes and he would teach me something by, you know, he recorded it on tape cassette and like tab it out for me there in the lesson. And it was actually a turning point when I like first realized that I didn't I didn't want to read tab anymore or I could learn I could learn by myself. I I was learning with Craig and he was teaching me amazing stuff like Hawaii 50 and like Sweet Georgia Brown <laughs> and like a thumb picking, you know, like uh I can't do it. You know, he oh, did cool. like like a Merle Travis picking. Like a Travis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he taught me like a bunch of like different Travis picking stuff. And he does like a cool version of Humoresque, which I actually covered on my YouTube channel okay. in Travis style. And it's on his record. I can't remember what his record is called. But yeah, yeah. Uh, he's really good at that Travis style thing on the banjo. just be a self-titled album i can't remember yeah yeah it um, could be that it's got the banjo the the granada head on it yeah right (laughs) oh but but you know i i was learning from him and i was i was you know learning a lot of good songs and i was playing in the band in greensboro um but one day i was practicing and i put on what's that song by allison Krauss and union station cluck old hen you know the You know, they do like an interesting version sure. of Cluck Old Hen. That's not like your your Jim Mills version or the old time version that I knew. And I started picking it out by ear. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can I can do this by ear. I can do this by myself. Like I don't need to go to somebody. I don't need to depend on somebody else to teach me. I can actually figure this stuff out. And it was like a really like light bulb moment for me. And that's when I like stopped taking lessons from a teacher. And you were able to actually pick out all the roll patterns too, not just. Oh, I probably did a melody. terrible job. <laughs> it was prob- <laughs> but but I was picking out the main melody, you know, the dee doo dee da boo dee da, and maybe some of the roll patterns that Ron Block was doing on it. But um, it was mostly like, oh, there's this is like a path that I can go down and I can, you know, start getting better at you know i remember sitting at home and i was getting into electric guitar and slide guitar and learning stevie ray vaughn solos on guitar just by (laughs) ear because it was just so fun to to play along and learn it um it was just a a way more fun way for me to learn the instrument it really broadens the scope when there doesn't need to be banjo tab to learn something (laughs) yeah you you can learn a an electric guitar thing or a saxophone thing right um and and especially before the internet was what it is today yeah Yeah, there just isn't banjo tab for everything right yeah yeah who else did you consider your main influences for for your own banjo playing were there particular players who stick out 
Well, the first banjo player I ever heard was on the Bluegrass Rules record, Mark Pruitt. Is it true that I've lost you? Am I not the only one? After all this pain and sorrow, darling, think what you've done. Which is funny. Like I just hung out with Mark a few weeks ago for the first time. We actually got together, and I had to huh. tell I had to tell him he was like my first. You know, you know what a spark bird is? Is like the bird that like gets you into birding. It's like oh, the first bird no. that you see that gets you into birding. I, I haven't not, heard that term. That's I cool. learned it from in like uh, This American Life. They have like okay. an episode about it. But anyways, um, Mark Mark Pruitt was like my spark banjo player. He like got me into it on that Bluegrass Rules by Ricky Skaggs album. Have you heard that? That's funny. I guess. Oh yeah, I, uh-huh. I actually just learned his uh, one of his kickoffs like a few days ago because we're going to cover. Um, Think of what you've done. Oh yeah, and I, and I wanted to learn his his version of it. So yeah, cool. Uh, I actually I've been listening to more Mark just just like last week. Nice. But for me, ironically, it's it's probably Craig Smith because I heard him on oh Jerry Douglas's album. Yes, that album is so good. Yeah, what got me into bluegrass was. I was I was a Flectones fan, but I didn't really think too much about the banjo. But yeah. it was when Alison Krauss was opening for them uh, on a tour, and I heard Jerry Douglas and was like, "What is that guy doing?" Whoa. And uh, yeah, bought his album. So, wait, yeah, you saw Craig world. Smith live with Jerry Douglas? No, I had seen Jerry Douglas with Alison Krauss, but, but he I stuck out as like, "Oh, I need to look into like, that I guy." I need to check that guy out. Yeah, yeah but yeah. then it was buying his album after that that. So uh, yeah, Craig was like the first guy I heard. That's um, amazing. That, that yeah, and it's, he's so good on that record too. Shenandoah Breakdown is just ridiculous. So Ride good. the Wild Turkey at Ride like wild 100, 180 BPM or yeah, however yeah. fast they play. It's so fast. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So what? So how long did... Were you still with that? Uh, you called it the Power Trio? <laughs> were, oh, were, yeah, were you still playing with... Power uh, Trio as a couple of high school kids. <laughs> yeah, Rick, yeah. Rick and Ryan, how, how far did that last? Or what was like your next step in terms of like branching out and, and becoming more of a, a professional-minded player? I definitely had like self-confidence issues in high school and Eric always knew what he, what exactly he like wanted to do. And so he knew Hmm. that like, you know, sophomore year, he knew he wanted to go to Berkeley and study at Berkeley and be a singer songwriter and like, just do that. And he was good at it. You know, he, he had the confidence to do it and he's just a great songwriter and musician. And Mm -hmm. we had the band throughout high school and we were playing lots of different gigs. We made a first record, we made one record together and, and um, you know, played Merle Fest at like the Thumb Picker stage, the indoor stage. That's, uh, you know, I met Jens Kruger for the first time in high school wow. at like uh, Union Grove Fiddler's Convention. And um, 
we were just kind of cruising, playing lots of graduation parties, lots of, you know, shows in Greensboro, not really branching out outside of the state. And um, college, you know, when college came, that's when we all kind of stopped. I was getting more serious with my current wife. We were high school sweethearts in, in high school. So we, Eric and I were kind of going, our, starting to go our separate ways that senior senior year of high school. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wanted to be involved in music. And, and so I just kind of was like, all right, I'll just try out college at UNC Wilmington. And that didn't work out. Although I did find a, an amazing jazz teacher. I was going for jazz guitar and they had amazing facilities, but they didn't have like a great bluegrass scene there. So I wasn't thriving in that, in that setting. And so my dad suggested that I try to work on cruise ships. So I auditioned over the phone to play on a carnival cruise line. I can't remember what it was called, the Elation, I think. It was like, it was like a four-month okay. contract where I'd go out, I'd play electric guitar, I could bring my banjo. I didn't know what, I was 18, I like didn't really know what it would be like, and I just went on the ship and uh, played in the show band, which is a really weird, interesting experience to play those shows. Also, I just practiced like, all night. <laughs> I would just like play the yeah. gig, like immerse myself. That's what my college was, is like immersing myself in music. Um, you know, like learning Coltrane solos or trying to figure out Coltrane solos on the banjo after like playing, you know, three or four hours that day in the show band with other really good musicians. There were some great musicians on the ship. The the show band was exclusively guitar though, is that right? Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah I've I've heard and it might it might even just be on your website somewhere that you consider playing on those cruise ships as like your real musical education. So I guess I'm, uh, what I'm hearing you say is it's, it was just an opportunity to play all day, every day. Is that, is that what you mean? Or is there more to it than that in terms of like what you consider to be the education you received by doing that? It was, it was playing as much as I was playing, but also being around musicians that were a lot better than me. There's, I remember a drummer named Robert. I remember a saxophone player named Blair, a, another drummer named Alan, and then a trumpet player, a sax, another sax player. Like I just remember these people that were incredible jazz musicians that were just like yeah. basically cutting me. You know, the, have you heard the term like cutting session? Like when sure. You, yeah, yeah. So like I was getting cut like every night, just uh-huh. like <laughs> you know, being shown up by all these amazing players um, and. It was just it was teaching me so much about the the language, the the vibe, and the vocabulary and the repertoire. Like all that stuff was was something that I was learning there. Whereas I think my personality, I I do better learning in situations where I'm thrown in there rather than going to school. I tried to go to school three times: UNC Wilmington, UNC Asheville, and the the New School for Jazz, and it just never worked out for me. <laughs> didn't didn't take, huh? No, yeah, yeah, it didn't take. <laughs> Which I'm fine with, but um, I uh, I would get into the scene, you know, and, and like in New York after I dropped out of school at the new school, I just got into the scene and started playing gigs and eventually got onto the Broadway circuit, which was cool too, but um, yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to, to ask more about that, but I, I guess I want to mm-hmm. stop for a second just to just to note that you, you made a point of mentioning that you had like self-confidence problems. So yeah. it's a little bit surprising to hear you say that you were able to like go on this scene and, and get cut by these guys night after night and still have the perseverance. Like you must have found some sort of confidence in 
your ability or? Uh, I don't know if it was, <laughs> maybe it was a little bit of that. I, I would enjoy playing music. Maybe just stubborn. <laughs> I think it was more stubbornness of like, I, I, you know, I knew that I was young. I knew that I needed to be playing all the time. Like I was just really like driven and dedicated to, to learning. Mm-hmm. It's it still like, I'm still trying to get over self-confidence <laughs> issues. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it was just the stubbornness to, to just do it all the time and no kind of feeling that I was in the right place. Uh, for my education. I, I know this is a, a weird thing to reflect on, but was there a point where you thought you maybe had a personal style, playing style on the banjo develop, or did you think you had anything unique about your own playing that you were working on? Yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, right. I don't feel like I have a very personal style on the instrument. And I was messaging with Danny Barnes about it because he's like one of these guys that has such a personal style on the band. Uh-huh. And I look up to him in a lot for a lot of different reasons. But uh, I was um, messaging him kind of to like ask him at what point did he like feel that he was himself? Because right now I'm still like, okay, I could do jazz. I could do bluegrass. I could do singer songwriter. I could do funk like there's so many routes that i want to get into uh-huh. classical music like i there's so many di- different things that i want to do with the instrument but i'm not really sure where to go with it or like there's nothing that's stuck yet i guess yeah it makes me wonder if even the people who we view as having very unique unmistakable voices if they even feel like they've right um arrived yeah, totally. at what they're going for. I don't I don't know the answer. Maybe maybe you do. What did Danny say when you were asking him about that? He said that he's I'm not saying exactly what he said. I'm kind of saying what I remember, of course. But he he mentioned that it's kind of about it's it's like kind of about the journey as cliché as that is, but like you just kind of create until something clicks like you get feedback from an audience you know he talked about the feedback from publications that were writing about his music they kind of labeled us him as something and he resonated with what they were saying which is an interesting mm. take but um you kind of just search until you he was like you put a bunch of stuff out there and kind of see what sticks so you just kind of search for it and that that's liberating to me because i'm like well then it doesn't really matter what I put out because anything I put out is myself. You know, it's all me. So just go for whatever I'm interested in. Like I'm not really interested in like writing for big band, for example. Could be cool. Uh But I'm more interested in writing for a string quartet, so why not try and do that? Um, I'm not interested in being a hip-hop artist. Like (laughs) I'm, I'm not illustrating my point very well, but I guess like I'm just trying to like not give as much weight to like my my thoughts of like oh i can't do that or i shouldn't do that you know when i want to do like music uh, for like strings or i want to do bluegrass i want to do old time like i know what i want to do and i know what i don't want to do so why don't i just go for what i want to do i don't know you can cut all yeah. that <laughs> that was that didn't make any no, sense to me no but, <laughs> i think you i think you got there i was a little surprised to hear danny say something like what what you just mentioned because mm-hmm. i i think the typical cliche thing you hear from unique artists is like screw what anyone says about your work just do what what you want and to to find out that he has like these external validations of 
what he's doing. It's it's kind of unexpected, I guess. It was unexpected to hear that. I mean, he also told me like, if you're trying to make a product, if you're trying to make something for other people, the art is not going to be any good. So you know, he's like, hmm. he's invested a lot of time like working on his own craft and in his yeah. own art. So I, I don't know. I don't. It's uh, it's an ongoing conversation with him though. I'm like trying to catch up with him as much as I can. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Let me maybe put it a different way. Were there any skills that you stumbled upon on Banja that you felt are m- maybe not unique in terms of your personal style, but maybe like essential building blocks that you think helped you improve a lot or maybe that you rely yeah. upon uh, even now? Yeah, I did give this a little thought. There's one thing in particular that I worked on at, on the cruise ship and um, a bass player friend that went to Berkeley showed it to me. It's the concept of like target notes between oh, yeah. chords. Yeah. Do you know about this? Yeah, but I would love to hear you talk about it because that's something okay. that I need to, <laughs> that I could use some work on. So well, I, I'm happy to get the, the lesson. Okay. <laughs> it's it's um, really cool stuff and... It, it's really helpful for jazz, and it, it's good for Scruggs style, but I think it's really good for helpful for melodic and single string style. And the idea is like you take a you know a triad chord, and mm-hmm. the the important notes to land on on the strong beats of the measure are the chord tones, so the notes that are in the chord. And when you're switching chords, what you want to do is aim for those chord tones in the next chord. So say we're going to a C chord, you know, um, we're going to aim for one of those chords. But the trick of this is to make it move with proper or good voice leading. So, you know, not jumping around tones. You're not just going... You're not just doing a roll pattern or some arpeggio pattern. You're actually moving the notes around. So if I do like four on G, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. My last note in that G, sorry, you do eight on G. I don't know if I said that, but you do eight on G. So one, (laughs) two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So we got eight. My eighth note is a B. So when I'm moving to the C chord, instead of jumping to a G up here or the E, I'm actually, I'm going to jump to the closest note, not jump, I'm going to move to the closest note in, mm-hmm. in the C chord to that B note. So I'm moving to the C, C tone right there. Yeah. Right? So it, it's, it's really helpful for, for jazz. So if you're doing like a, a two five one, so if, say I'm doing a two five one in C, which is D minor. G, C. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go, um, that's that's moving with really nice voice leading. You can hear the chords change while I'm playing these single notes, right? Right. Yeah. So all I'm doing is I'm doing a D minor seventh. So D minor. That's A F D C, and then. Moving to a G chord, G seventh. So that C moves to the B, or I can move up to a D, you know, because that's a, that's not the closest note, because obviously it's a half step down to the B, but it's moving up, up a you know a whole step. 
still one, just one st- scale degree yeah, either direction. Okay, yeah, yeah that, that's the word I'm looking for. One scale degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, you could go up to that C or you could go down to the third. Mm-hmm. And so once you can get those arpeggios down, like the first step is to take two, one chord, really, and like practice the arpeggios... You know, maybe practice the G seventh arpeggio, which is like G B D F G B. See how far you can stretch that arpeggio. Maybe start with your index finger on the fourth string, fifth fret. You know. Okay. And then you start to add in another chord. So that you start the chord progression. I guess before that, you put the metronome on and kind of improvise with the the G chord. Then you can do it switching chords. Anyways, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in that, that case, y- yeah, it does. And in that case, you were adding the the major seventh to the C arpeggio. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So G seventh to C major seventh. It's definitely right. more fun to do it with like major sevenths and seventh chords. Um, yeah. Four note chords versus three note four chords. Notes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just it's a little easier to do it that way. Hey, folks, there has never been a better time to learn banjo online through video lessons. And the best game in town is Peghead Nation, one of our sponsors. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll be able to learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction with some of these courses. Check it out. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, no matter what course you select, they're all going to come with high-quality, multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation, plenty of tab, play-along tracks, and tunes and songs for you to learn. Perhaps best of all, if you join any of these Peghead Nation video courses now, you'll get your first month free just for being a Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast listener. So just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. Another sponsor of the show is GHS Strings. We banjo players know that a banjo is only as good as the quality of strings that you put on it, and GHS has a long track record of providing the top quality in banjo strings to some of the top industry professionals such as Bela Fleck, J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, Todd Taylor, and me. I'm a GHS user, so check them out at ghsstrings.com. 
Now, if you ask me where I go to purchase my GHS strings, that answer is simple. It's the same place that I go for all of my banjo, guitar, and any other stringed instrument needs. It's Elderly Instruments here in Lansing, Michigan. They've been family-owned since 1972, and it's the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage instruments and all the accessories and strings that you might need. Now, if you aren't close enough to Lansing, Michigan to visit them in person, you can also see their entire inventory online at elderly.com or feel free to give them a call to speak to a knowledgeable salesperson at 517-372-7880 or once again, see what they have at elderly.com. So that's how you would, so you would take either a piece of music that you're working on or just some generic chord yeah. progression and, and try, try to work on those. Yeah, so I would take a chord progression. You know, once I've, I feel good about the arpeggios and I've gotten kind of laid it out on my banjo neck, I would take a, a chord progression like Whiskey Before Breakfast. You know, maybe like um, to do it slowly. And so I'm aiming for these notes in those chords, you know, so like mm-hmm. for the, you know, like if, if you're yeah. doing that, yeah, yeah. So you can hear the chord progression more or less, you know, when you, when you land on a D, over a G chord, it's not super strong because it's the fifth of the chord, and you're also in the key of D. So I don't know. You'll, yeah. you'll figure out what works better for your ear, but that's the basic idea. And then you can also do jazz. Like if I do, there will never be another you. You know, like E flat major seventh to D half diminished G C minor, like that first chord progression. So that's E flat major seventh, D half diminished, or D minor seventh flat five. G seventh flat nine C minor seventh. So E E flat major seventh. Uh, uh, yeah, E flat major seventh. D minor seventh flat five. Uh, G C minor. And then I'll start it over. sense (laughs) yeah Yeah. no it totally does and is that how you would work on it with straight quarter notes not adding any kind of like yeah extra uh articulation or whatever yeah that's another thing that i learned about and that's something that i'm trying to work on right now is um the idea of like restraint so restraining yourself to only Mm -hmm. focusing on I'm only focusing on harmony, you know, I'm only focusing on how the chords move. I'm not focusing on rhythm. So I, in order to make that more effective, I need to simplify like the rhythmic aspect of it, you know? Right. So I'm, I'm just focusing on the improvising using the, using the, the chord tones. The opposite side of that is like improvising using only rhythm. So you're only sticking to one note. 
Like one note, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, which I'm bad. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that's really cool. Is there anything else that came to mind as, as far as like stuff you were working on back then that you maybe found really useful or still use? I'm I'm always fascinated by like rhythmically proficient jazz musicians. Like there's this guy in New York named Michael Valenou, who's a French guitar player. Mm-hmm. And I took a lesson with him once, once, and he, he kind of blew my mind with the stuff he was talking about. And it was really, you know, metronome, all metronome-related practices. And a lot of it was, like, kind of meditative relaxation techniques because he doesn't tap his foot. Huh. You know, he's just, like, playing and just, like, shredding. And, you know, you've seen those players. Yeah. Baylor's kind of like that. He's just, like, <laughs> it's just – or Noam is like that, too. They just, like, stand there looking kind of bored and just, like, play their asses <laughs> off. It's insane. Yeah, just pe- peel off yeah. ungodly things. Yeah, right. Now, yeah. The, this this French guy, is he uh, – a jazz guitarist? What what was his Yeah, yeah, style? he's a jazz guitarist. Okay. What and what did he have you do as far as uh rhythmic or what? Do you do you remember any of that? Yeah. I remember one exercise and it's not like a complex exercise I'm pulling up my metronome right now. So it's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three. So only hearing the click on the second beat of the measure. Huh. Two, three, four. out of practice with it so it's not totally consistent but that's the idea is like feeling the subdivisions and then soloing only with triplets you know like i can't do it <laughs> but you know like no that's really interesting though yeah do you know what the philosophy is behind having it just on the two like, or would he then cycle it through each beat or maybe even an upbeat? Or how, exactly. What? Yeah, yeah. You cycle it okay. through. So, you, so you're feeling the beat in different places. Yeah. Wow. It kind yeah. of almost hurts my brain just thinking about trying to, trying to do that. <laughs> it's such a great exercise. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. So let's go back to what you were up to. You kind of teased the fact that you ended up doing Broadway shows yeah. up in New York. Tell the story about that. Okay, so when I first moved to New York, I went to the New School for Jazz for a semester. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out. I was like, I was working a uh, work study job, and I didn't have any time to practice. There were some self confidence issues for sure, and I ended up dropping out of that school. And I started working at J Crew. I was living in Bushwick. I was also trying to get into the the Broadway scene at that point, that was years before I actually did uh, Bright Star. But I, I sat, I remember sitting in the pit of Wicked mm-hmm. with the guitar player, Rick Molina. He, I think he's still the guitar player for Wicked in on Broadway. And, um, you know, it was, it was hilarious. He would, 
he knows the show so well that he has like an iPad down there and plays like Candy Crush while like in between <laughs> songs. <laughs> and then like he just knows it so well that he just knows when to shut it off and like play his part and then he goes back to it. Um, I hope you didn't just get him fired. Oh, I know, right. I even thought about that beforehand. I think they'll be fine. <laughs> he, I, the thing is he shreds it. You know, it's like you can't, right. you can't tell and they probably, you know, they probably don't care. It's like whatever you can do to not get like super jaded on one of the, the Broadway gigs. Cause you know, the same thing every night is, is pretty taxing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I did that, but then years later, uh, you know, I was at one of my friend's weddings and I got a call on my phone. It was, an, it was a, uh, on, it was a restricted number or a, a no caller ID number. Uh-huh. And, um, and so I didn't answer it. And then later that evening, I, I checked the message and it was like, Hey, this is Steve Martin. Uh, I know him. Pakilni gave me your number and I'm looking for a banjo player for a musical that I've, I've written with Edie Brickell. And I flipped, you know, obviously <laughs> I had like had no yeah. clue. I, I had met with Noam like, I don't know, a couple months before that just to hang. Cause he lived up the street from me in Brooklyn for a second when he was living there. And then he must've told Steve that I was in town and I, I play and and could play yeah, yeah and um and I guess he thought I could read music which is a necessary skill for that show and so yeah Steve called me and, and I called him back and I was like yeah hey uh, I want to play your show bright star keep shining for me shine on and see me through bright star keep shining for me one day I'll shine for you You never know what life will bring Only what you bring to life Hopes and dreams and fine imaginings They happen in their own good time I've seen a weak man fight so strangely, you, you mentioned that you were trying to get into Broadway a few years earlier. Uh, I expected that that was something that like eventually led to it, but it, it didn't have anything to do with the fact that you had already made that attempt. No, no I mean, Sounds I, like. you know, I'm I'm pretty spiritual, so I, I'm thinking that like spiritually, maybe I put the energy out there enough to like come back to me eventually. But I don't know, like logically, no, no, yeah. Doesn't have really interesting. To do with it. Yeah, I know. I know. Talk about some of the um, this. You know, obviously, you need to be proficient at your instrument, but obviously, most banjo players also don't have any pit orchestra experience. Talk right. about like what skills are required, or maybe even just like some unexpected things that are really important to be able to do that job that people don't realize. Reading music is important, and mm-hmm. it's not. Not not necessarily reading the notes, but reading like the measures of like the time signatures, um, because time signatures will change a lot. And so, as long as you can understand, okay, you know, two four is moving to three four is moving to five four is moving back to two four, and you can count that and you can be <laughs> yeah, with it. Just not get time. lost. Not yeah. get lost exactly. You know, for that show specifically, I was playing, I was playing claw hammer, three finger, and guitar. And so I was lucky and I've had definitely a lot of people email me about Bright Star and, and get in touch with me about the music, which I, you know, have put out an app or Steve paid us to put out an app for, for Bright Star so people could actually learn the music on their iPad. Um, and it's all tab, 
uh, so I tabbed out all the music for it, but I didn't, I didn't have any tab for it. I basically just learned the parts from Steve. So I was lucky mm-hmm. in that he was teaching me all the parts by ear, you know, and if I played something wrong, he would call me out and that's how I'd learn it. But then right from the source though, that's great. Right from the source. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. And then the orchestrator came in and changed a bunch of the keys. So, you know, I was oh, doing, no. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, there's some, there's some spots in that in that musical where there's some really fast capo changes and, you know, you know, we're unique in that we have fifth string spikes. And so we, you know, have to change that really fast. And I would also have to do quick banjo changes and capo changes and think ahead. Um, you know, like prepare the banjo for three songs ahead, uh, because I knew it was going to be in the key of D, but you know, the current song that I'm playing is the key of C. So, yeah, I've been in some productions like that where that almost becomes part of playing the song is yeah. preparing the other banjo at this point because yeah, you, right. you you know what's you know what's coming up. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's that's part of the job for sure. That's crazy. Yeah. The the other gig that I'm I'm dying to hear about is it uh-huh. it, it won't surprise anybody who knows me to know that one of my big early childhood influences is Weird Al. So I, I was raised on a steady diet of Weird Al and like Pee Wee's Playhouse, which explains <laughs> a lot about me. That's amazing. So so I'm intensely <laughs> jealous, but also eager to to hear about you playing with Weird Al. Let let us uh, tell us about that one. <laughs> well, I didn't get to hang with him, um, so you don't need to be that jealous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got to see, I got to talk to him afterwards and and like shake his hand. That's about all. I, yeah, all I got to do like interaction wise with weird Al, but he's a super, super nice guy. He thanked everybody in the band for coming there, you know, and that was, that was a job I got through a contractor. So like kind of later on, you know, in New York, I got hooked up with a contractor um, and she would call me for things and hook me up with uh, really cool gigs, like weird, you know, like, you know, they need you to play in Lederhosen on weird on, uh, <laughs> you know, last week tonight with John Oliver with weird Al and, you know, you show up and you don't know anybody in the band and you just rehearse it a couple of times and, and play it on live TV. And, and uh, just to let people know, you're not, you're not exaggerating about the Lederhosen thing. That's like really what the, no, that, that what actually, the outfit was. I, was I looked outfit, it up yeah. so I can, I can, <laughs> I can verify. <laughs> yeah. You can verify that's that pretty is, cool. uh, is what happened. Yeah. So um, right on. If he calls you again and you're not available, feel free to uh, you know shoot him my number. Oh. First on my list. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Let's move ahead. I really want to talk about like your composing because okay. I've read a bit about some of your recent albums, and a lot of them involve like locking yourself in in a banjo cabin for weeks and <laughs> and and recording, and it and some of the some of the tracks on your new album which is which is great by the way uh have sort of like that guided meditation kind of vibe to them they, they have like the, the spoken word and the drones happening so i'm i'm picturing you having like a real like a zen approach to composing so tell me is that what what are those factors and and how do you do that well that is a uh composing is is definitely a work in progress it's just an evolution a constantly evolving thing that record was really unique i had just left tune fox and i was kind of like anti-tech 
I was like, I don't want to be around computers. I don't want to be around phones. I got rid of my <laughs> my phone and got like a flip phone, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was great. But eventually it was like kind of prohibiting me from being able to be in touch. Like the, it was very glitchy, you know? I would like try oh. to send a text and it would take me like, I don't know, five minutes to send a text because it would like <laughs> mess up. So eventually I came back to the old iPhone. But uh, anyways, I, I was I was like pretty anti like, computer. I don't want to be working at a computer. I don't want to be, because a lot of what I did with TuneFox was on the computer. It's a tech company. And, um, I was tabbing out stuff and making videos and editing videos and mm-hmm. doing camps and, you know, reaching out to people, doing support. So all computer stuff. And I started waking up in the morning at like 5 AM. I never locked myself. <laughs> <laughs> into a shed but uh, uh this is my this is like my music studio where i recorded the record and it's uh it's a 12 by 12 foot um used to be a lawnmower shed that i insulated and put walls up and put electricity in and it's uh it's my my recording studio basically you know 150 feet from my house and i come yeah. i used to come out here every single morning uh after i after i left tune fox it it was like 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in the morning, just come out here, look at the stars, cup of coffee, and light a candle. And see that, like, there's a Tascam Porta studio back there. I see um, it, yeah. It's awesome. I love I love analog. And, um, and I, would just, I would just come out here and, and write uh, by candlelight with the Tascam. And I would sometimes write on the piano, sometimes with the banjo, but mostly it was guitar and piano that I was writing the songs on. And then I, I used analog synthesizer, so I used a uh, Behringer Model D, which is a copy of a, um, a Moog Model One, I think. And um, okay, and it's it's on my shelf over there. So um, I, I put in some time in a Pink Floyd tribute band, so I definitely have an appreciation for the analog synths. But yeah. for for everyone who's hearing this and maybe getting raising an eyebrow, like. The synth work on the album, it's it's like not weird. It's it's not like f- some far out thing. It's just like yeah. cool uh, bed of tones. Yeah, and, yeah. That's what I was trying to trying to make with it. It's just drones, you know, trying to like right. exactly a bed of sound um, to play over um, to, to get a little bit hypnotic with it and get a little bit a little weird, but um, just to kind of take you into this like meditative kind of mood and because that's what I was in when I was writing the music with a really amazing producer, Sam Howard, who played bass with me uh, when I was playing with Ben Soli. And he also played bass with Molly Tuttle for a while when she was doing a more like Americana thing, less bluegrass, but um, he's a good buddy and amazing producer. So um, yeah, I mean, that that record is different. I haven't been able to really <laughs> write any songs since that record. Um, so I'm I'm trying to figure out what my process is right now, and 
I have this cool little keyboard. It's a synthesizer. It's called OP1 by Teenage Engineering, and it mimics a four-track tape machine. Do you know what this is? No. Okay. Um, it, mimics a four-track? Yeah. What, like in what way? So you only have four tracks that you can re- record to, but it also has built-in synth sounds, built-in drum sounds, mm-hmm. and you can sample so if, if um, I've been making some compositions where I'm sampling my banjo and then tweaking it, making it sound really weird, and then... You can sample it on that on device? The, on the device, yeah, yeah. It's, oh. it's, so it's like all this, like, it's like a built-in uh, four-track tape recorder, but like there's all these other cool things that you can do with it. And so you can record huh. four tracks, and then you can slow it down, you know, like you can slow down an analog tape tape machine with mm-hmm. a little knob turn and um and you can reverse it so you can go backwards um and you can like do a tape stutter effect so they built it it's a company in sweden or scandinavia somewhere and they built it with like the tape machine in mind it being tape and so you can wow. you know, when, you, when you're editing things you're like cutting the tape like on the little screen that it has you're like cutting the tape and like pasting it and like you can edit <laughs> together it's really powerful and it's really fun um, oh yeah, sounds like endless possibilities. Endless possibilities, seriously. Yeah, and um, so I've been using that. But you know, Jens, I, I went over to visit with Jens um, in January, and he gave me a bunch of really amazing stuff to think about, and um, some kind of assignments. Almost like I'm taking them as assignments. But you know, when I go over to Jens' place, I don't really play with him. He just kind of like talks with me, and it's so amazing. <laughs> You feel like you could run through a brick wall after you talk to that guy sometimes. Oh my just God. a yeah, like yeah. Exactly. inspirational speaker. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and so he was basically like have notebooks and write down your write down your world. Just like put your world in these notebooks. Like hmm. it could be your dreams, it could be just like the things that you imagine, you know, your memories, anything. Um or if you, you're ri- wanting to write compositions about like a you know, I don't know, a business here in Brevard or whatever, you can go and like interview people and write down what they, what you perceive them to be like and, and just write down everything. And that can be like your well of like, that's your like source, your compositional source. Um, wow. Cause like I would, I would write things and I can write melodies, you know, I can I, pretty easily, I can write melodies, but there doesn't, it to me, it doesn't feel like there's much substance and, it doesn't go as deep as I want it to go. So it's kind of a practice of depth. And that's kind of what he was sharing with me. Um, and, and he also talked a lot about form. Like he says, form is kind of the most important thing and the importance of simplicity. And when you hear Jens' stuff, you're not like, that's very simple. That's actually, <laughs> that's crazy hard. Um, but like yeah. when he explains it, he's like the melody that I'm playing, you know, he's playing like the chords and the melody and the roles at the same time. And um, the melody that he's playing, you know, a lot of it's on the first string. Yeah. If you isolate that one melody, it's it's pretty simple. So, what did he mean by form? Like the f- the form of the piece in mm-hmm. terms of sections or a section, what is, what B did he mean? section? Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, he'll write the A section, and then he'll write a B section, and then he'll bring back the A section. Um, and he talked about rondo form, which I think is. Do you know what that is? No, I've heard of songs called rondos yeah, yeah. but I, I don't i don't know what they <laughs> he talked about that your listeners some of them probably know what that is um but i think it's a b a c okay. or maybe it's 
Yeah, I can't remember. Um, but he talks about okay. how that, how important that is to him and, and determining what the form of the composition is going to be because um, that re- really determines the arc. And so like when he writes an A section, he writes a really catchy, hooking melody. And this is obviously not a rule, and it's just what I remember from his com- conversation that I had with him. But he writes a melody that you can really – you know, latch onto and it's like really powerful. Mm-hmm. And then the B section deviates a little bit and like kind of brings you into a different world within that same kind of main environment. And then yeah. you go back to the A section. So you go back to something that's recognizable and that just brings you in again. Oh, I recognize that melody. And yeah. then he said with his C sections, he like takes you out even further and you like kind of go into, it's like the developmental piece of the, um, of the music. And then after that C section, it brings you back to something you recognize already. So it's cool how to hear him, you know, talk about how he develops his compositions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for you, when, when you were putting this together, was that your first stab at songwriting and, and also maybe singing? I guess I'm not as familiar with like what you, what you did before then. So I've done some instrumental records before then. This was definitely my first like songwriting thing. I, I had never written songs. And, and my first singing thing too, which was a experience, a, a, an evolution to go through for sure. The small things that we do Sharing a word or two Telling a story to a new friend Wow, killer job, man. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I think it sounds great. I need to make myself do that. So so this was before you were doing any of this like notebooking your world. You were just coming out to your shed and seeing what happens. Yeah. Like. Yeah, I was just seeing what happens and my voice was I'm still not like great like really happy with my voice, but like I can definitely ch- tell that it changed from the beginning of like the demos that I made, like I still have the demos that uh-huh. I made on the four track and, right. and the evolution of like, you know, I would go out to the studio every single day and like sing and like try to hone, like try to figure out what the song, what I wanted my voice to sound like within the song and just like kind of lean into that. And then my, Sam would give me notes. He would say, don't do that or sing this differently. Mm-hmm. And um, or this is good. This sounds good. And Emily, my wife, would would also give me feedback. But I would do it like consistently. You know, it became a practice of like, okay, I'm 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 recording this record. I'm committed to this process, and I'm committed to singing on it. So like, I just I gotta I gotta do it all the time. Had you not sang very much, even in like a bluegrass context before then? I'd sang a little bit, but I'd always try to sound like a a bluegrass singer. You know, I I would never like really sound like what I sound like on the record, like, which I feel like I sound more like myself. Yeah, I'd sing like songs like I Ain't Broke But I'm Badly Banned or Dark Hollow, but always kind of in the bluegrass style. Like I would try to imitate 
I don't know who, but <laughs> I would try to imitate whatever I've heard, yeah. like Hot Rise or Tony Rice. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say t- Hot Rise because I, I feel like your voice sounds like maybe a lower baritone uh, Tim O'Brien kind of tone. I don't know if he's a a big influence on you or not, but I love Tim. O'Brien. Seems like that comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Tim. O. Cool. Um, Sam even sent me some reference to to Timo. I think when we were working on the vocal stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Any other advice? And I'm I'm drilling you down on this because no, that's fine. <laughs> I'm trying to do more singing myself as someone who has like basically never sang. So oh, good man. <laughs> any other advice for like being confident or finding your your voice or just building the quality of, of how you can sing one of your songs? Um, try to sing it as many different ways as you can. Try to move your voice throughout your mouth. Like you can sing back in your throat. Oh, and you can like, I was moving the pitch too. Let me find a better pitch. Oh, oh, oh. So you can sing like in the back of your throat. Oh, yeah. And then you can bring it up to your nose. And so like kind of play around with how that feels and what that sounds like um, for different words, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, that's and then sing like scales, you know. Like I did, I have a little piano over here, and I would sing through like you know, you know, just like the typical what you imagine a voice teacher would teach you. But I would do it with vowel right. vowel sounds, so a you know, like that. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a voice teacher and I don't know anything about it <laughs> other than like what I've practiced. <laughs> um, but I think singing for me that the trick was to sing it as many different ways as possible to feel my voice in different parts of my face and, and then listen back to myself, record myself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's the most telling it's, thing. That's scary. It is scary. <laughs> it's, it's freaky. <laughs> and usually it sounds like crap. Especially when it's your voice, you know, you're like, oh. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I have to edit this podcast, so I have to hear myself nonstop. Yeah, right. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I might be actually used to that part of it. Yeah. Let's move to some of your teaching and educational okay. stuff. Like, what, as far yeah. as I can remember, you actually were probably among the first of those, like, online YouTube banjo instructional channels, and you ended up like being fairly successful from what I could tell as, as far as building your channel. And then you, you mentioned going on to do the tune Fox thing, Mm -hmm. which is a very educational based instructional platform. I don't know. Do you, do you consider yourself like a natural teacher or what drew you into doing more of that? I'm not sure if I'm a natural teacher or not. I was basically, I remember being in our apartment in Brooklyn and being like, well, I don't know what prompted it actually. I, I I think we had friends that were getting into the like YouTube blogging thing mm-hmm. like years ago, 10 years ago. And I was like, well, maybe I should do some lessons on there. And I, I remember like I've watched my, and they're still on YouTube. I've watched my like first lessons where I'm like so terrible on the camera and just like, don't know how to, like, I'm like not moving. I'm like, like st- <laughs> almost like just completely still just like very boring to watch. But um, I decided I wanted to put some lessons up with no really no real goal in mind, and um, and then it kind of evolved, and I was like, okay, so I want to start doing records, you know, like go through the songs on the record, and I I did 
most of Baylor's white Baylor's drive record. Oh, cool. And I started to do those split screen, like video lessons, which was fun. And I was listening to this Roman history podcast and they have like a, a thing where you, if you pay $5 a month, you like get bonus content or whatever. And so like, mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I could like charge $5 a month and I could have like a little membership site. And so that's kind of how that started. But I, I put up a bunch of YouTube videos at first with no goal in mind. And I started listening to that and I was like, Oh, that could be an interesting income stream. And, and with that, you know, with YouTube and there's people out there that are really good at it. Like, uh, you know, Marcel on guitar and then, uh, Eli Gilbert on banjo, like who are just mm. really good about the consistency of it. You know, they put out great content, but like the consistency is the name of the game, you know? And I had, we had Milo five years ago and that just threw off my game. <laughs> I was just like, I cannot, <laughs> nothing I is consistent. Yeah. 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 Nothing is consistent. I just yeah. struggled with it. And, uh, that was a a great uh, way for me to make money while I was in New York, but uh, eventually, just I couldn't I couldn't hold on to it. I couldn't be consistent with it, and it just felt like it was draining me. So I had to let it go. And uh, I'm not really on YouTube much anymore. I mean, I still have those videos up there. I, I've gravitated towards teaching, but I've started to realize that like teaching was almost a way for me to. It was more of a way to distract myself from playing music full-time creating full-time i guess what i'm hearing you say is like it was a negative thing that it was distracting you from yeah playing like more I, full-time? well not necessarily negative or positive but i was just like fearful of like really diving into being a full-time like creator being a full-time composer or full-time yeah. and i'm still like processing that and still working towards that because I've no, I've always known that i've wanted to do that i've wanted to be a full-time musician or composer but uh, there's always been this like self doubt, and that's kind of what I know. That, that, why is this the theme of the podcast? It, it shouldn't be, but <laughs> I, I guess it's like you know, I've I, I think there's a lot of people out there that have the self doubt, and I would distract myself with teaching to you know to say, oh, I'm a teacher, I'm not really a creator, you know. But like deep down in my heart, hmm. I know that like that's what I want to be doing. I want to be creating. Right. I want to be like writing music all the time, and. um the teaching stuff wasn't necessarily a negative thing because I, I met a lot of amazing people and I think I helped a lot of people, but it wasn't maybe my true passion, my true path that I, I knew I was supposed to be on. I took, uh, I, I asked for question submissions yeah. on, on Facebook and I got one or two, uh, Facebook questions okay. to ask you here from okay. listeners. First one is someone's observing that you seem to be very deliberate and crafting your right hand technique to really capture like subtleties of, of tone that you're going for. So I guess Mm. a, is that a a true observation that you've taken that time to, to do that? And then B assuming that, that you have done that, what is your approach to right hand technique and how would you recommend people work on achieving better tone through the right hand? Oh, wow. Um, I would say, my stronger hand is definitely my left hand. My right hand, I've been, I even, you know, in the past month I've been, or the past week, you know, I've been at the beach, I've been like testing my speed and testing my accuracy and, you know, like comfortably without any tension in my right hand, I can play at about 125. And and so mm-hmm. that's slow. <laughs> that's slow for a banjo player. I don't think I have a strong right hand. I, I feel like I have a good handle on how to improve that. Tone has been 
important, but not like, not like a focus of mine until very recently. Um, and that really came with getting this banjo. This is a, this is a relatively new banjo for me. It's a, so oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about that. Okay. Yeah. Don't, okay. don't spoil it. I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it. That'll, so, that'll come next. Okay. Um, so it really came with getting this banjo. I've been like, like getting super close to the strings, like turning it like this and listening to it and, um, yeah. you know, turning it up towards my face and listening to it and, and, and also getting picky with my picks, picky with my picks, uh, <laughs> pun intended. And, um, and, and exploring different strings and, and fret heights, you know, this banjo just got refretted. So I'm really getting into tone in a way that I haven't been into it before. Mm. And the right hand thing it's it's playing with a metronome. It's also just like being aware of any tension that you might have. Like, and I'm reworking my right hand technique. Like, I can play it 160, 170, but I can play about 30 seconds, and 30 seconds in, I get tense. You know, it's like uh-huh. I can hang, but it's not comfortable, and I'm worn out after the song is done. And yeah. I, I'm just kind of over that. So I've been working every day and. Um, on on relaxation and, and breathing. It kind of goes back to that guy, Mikael Valenu, and I was taking a lesson from him. He is so relaxed. And you he you know, he even spoke about breathing, like focusing on your breathing when you're playing. And so, you know, I'm I'm focusing on that and and also this is a cool exercise that I'm doing is like playing um playing a roll pattern, just like a forward roll. Or I'll do it a little faster. Changing the subdivision, so going from like 16th notes to 8th note triplets um, uh-huh. within that roll pattern. And so I was taking the, the tune Steam Powered Area Plane and saying, okay, so over the A minor chord, you know, the second chord of the song, I'm going to only do triplets over it. Um, and the rest of the song, I'm going to play six, 16th notes. Okay. Um, and it's a cool exercise. Uh, yeah. And it show, really... show us what that sounds like, <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't mind. Dang it. All right, you walked into it. Metronome on the... I know, I really did. I felt it coming. <laughs> it's at a hundred right now, so Okay. So first maybe get the triplet in my head. Do, 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 do. something like that you know right <laughs> just to get me out of the box of playing like all 16th notes all the time uh-huh. um when i'm improvising you know i was practicing cripple creek <laughs> you know like trying to get in triplets to just like make it i don't know it's, it's like in pursuit of like finding my own sound almost like that's right. why i'm trying to like explore this you know and i've got other ideas for for exploration too but um yeah that's what i'm working on currently other ideas for exploration (laughs) let do do you feel at like are you able to talk about some of those i I like hearing about ideas for exploration even if you can't even if you can't demonstrate them just (laughs) yeah well um one is and I've had this idea for a long time. I've just not really wanted to practice, wanted to practice it. Cause it sounds really hard, but, um, 
taking a like a bluegrass chord progression and working on playing outside the chord cha- chord changes. Do you know what I mean by that? Outside is in outside notes or yeah. rhythm, from a rhythmic standpoint. Like uh, like outside notes from a harmonic okay. from a melodic perspective. So like um you know, for for a five chord in a song, playing a tritone substitution and figuring out different ways to play a tritone substitution. You know, like John John Hardy has that long five chord. So, like, what can I do right. with that? Can I do a diminished scale over that? And and and, but not just do up and down a diminished scale. Like, figure out different ways to uh, maybe combine that triplet thing with like a diminished scale and go like really <laughs> really weird with it. Other ways, there's a, there's a, what's the scale? But you know, if we're in the key of D and you have an A chord, which is the five chord, playing the, it's called the altered scale, I think. So like playing um, over the A chord, it's basically a, a B flat melodic minor scale. So you're going B flat, C, C sharp. Sorry, I'll say D flat. E flat F G A B. So that's over an A chord. <laughs> so like okay. getting like kind of outside the box with like you know we're we're so used to be hearing like or something like that or like right. over an A chord, but instead of playing like that. weird stuff it doesn't sound good yeah. right now but it's because i have to haven't explored it yet <laughs> um, well and it helps a lot more when you have the harmony instruments well yeah to, yeah, to yeah. hear how it uh, how the notes sound over it too yeah. right yeah if i had that harmony behind you know if i had a backing track going it might sound a little bit it's still still sound terrible probably and it might sound <laughs> it might sound terrible that's the whole you know that's right. whole that's part of it yeah just exactly. exploring <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then the last Facebook question is, when are you coming back to Australia? Ah, I saw Peter's question as soon as possible. I, I, I was, <laughs> uh, that was so fun. I, I was able to go to Australia for a banjo camp um, hosted by Peter Nahusen of Bellbird Banjos. Yins mm-hmm. was there. Josh Goforth was there. And yeah, Peter flew me out and my family was able to come. And gosh, it was so awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So there you go, Peter. Just make him, <laughs> make him an offer. Yeah, make me an offer. Put, put, <laughs> put this guy on a flight. Yeah. Uh, all right, gear time. Tell, tell us about this new-to-you okay. banjo that you have. Okay, this is a 1936 PB4 conversion. So Ooh. it's walnut. Yeah, it's great. I, I love this thing. It's got a neck made by Randy Wood, and uh-huh. it's got a Harry Sparks tone ring. So it's an uncut rim. It the neck was built in the '70s, I think, so it's pretty old. It's kind of thick. I usually like thinner necks, but I really do like this neck. It had teeny little threat, frets on it when I first got it, so I I got the frets replaced. I got a new head. It had a calfskin head on it too, which was just oh, a wow. pain in the butt. So I I got a new head and um, uh-huh. went to Mark Pruitt for a little setup help, and he uh-huh. was able to give me some really amazing pointers, and it was just fun to hang with him. Yeah, I mean it's you know I've been tinkering it with uh, tinkering on it a, a ton this week at the beach. But it, it really um, it sounds really really nice and 
my first banjo actually was a walnut banjo. It was a RB4 uh, Gibson okay. from like 1991. And um, uh-huh. I have deviated from the walnut path. And uh, now, I'm, now I'm back and I like it. I really like having a walnut banjo. It's cool. And so how, how recently did you actually obtain this? This was two months, th- two, three months ago. Oh, so oh no, yeah. it must have been January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wow, even, that's really cool. Yeah. Are you somebody who had lusted after a, a pre-war instrument for quite some time? Was that always on your radar as something to, to aim for? It's something I've wanted for a while, yeah. Yeah, I've, cool. I've wanted a pre-war and... This one was being sold by a guy in Asheville for a, for a really great price. He said he just wanted it to be in someone's um, hands that would play it a lot. And so I met up with them and we, we talked and I played it and yeah, it was it was the one. It's it's how you bought it. You didn't add like that, or I I know you changed the head, but you didn't add like that tone ring or or no no. It's just how like I bought that. it. Yeah yeah. yeah. Um, with the Randy Wood neck and the and the tone ring, I haven't really altered it much other than the head and the bridge. And the Is there how much experience do you have with pre-war instruments, and are you able to describe like what you would say the difference is that you hear between this and maybe a, your RB4 or or something that's like kind of yeah. the same but just a lot newer? So the best I don't have a lot of experience with them. I would say my best description is that this is a very woody sounding instrument, which mm-hmm. I like a lot. It's got like some deep resonance happening. You can, you, can le- you can lay into it and it sounds really good. You can also play closer to the neck and it sounds loud still, but also like, you know, the, that nice plunky warmth to it. Yeah. Um, it's good. I, I definitely feel like I'm getting used to it still and it's getting used to me. So. Oh, I bet. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Well, it's good. I'm sure the previous owner will know or will be happy to know that it's in some good hands nice. and being yeah. being loved. It is being loved for sure. What about everything else? Take us through picks and bridges and okay. strings and head and all the all the gear. <laughs> um, so right now on my fingers, I have kind of a mix match. It's a, One is an Oval 8 National on my middle finger and then on my... Index finger, I don't know what you'd call this one, but it is a national, and I think it's a vintage one, but it's not an oval eight. And I just, I have a bunch of different picks. I have some old Dunlops and some oval eights. My, I, th- this is this oval eight that I have on my middle finger is a um, is one from a set, and I have the other one, but it, it, the metal has been worn down a little bit, so I'm not using it. It makes like a, oh, okay. it feels weird on the string. Thumb pick is a blue chip. I also have a Dunlop that I really like. And I, I used to use the Golden Gate, like clown barf picks, and I really like those still. Mm-hmm. My head is an American Banjo Company head uh, that I bought from Ned Lubarecki a couple weeks ago. And um, it's interesting. I've never really put a new head on my banjo. So it, it's interesting to hear the difference of like when it was brand new. Like I definitely could tell the difference between it and the calf skin, but then I noticed it was sounding pretty thin. Um, since then it has, it has, I don't know, settled a little bit more, um, which I'm happy about. I have a Yates bridge on right now. Um, I really like the Scorpion bridges as everybody does. Um, yeah. Silvio Ferretti. 
and um, I have a few of those, but right now the Yates is sounding really good and it's just at the right height. Um, this is not a radius fingerboard. So, uh, you know, I've been playing radius banjos for a long time and, and this one is flat. And so it's a little bit different. And I also don't have many bridges for a flat fingerboard. So um, Mark <laughs> yeah. Mark gave me a couple. And, and so this is one of them. I think it's 5 sixteenths height. The head is tuned to a G sharp. And strings, I use straight up strings, which I love. Um, I just think they sound great. I've been replacing the, I use a medium size with them. So what is that, 10, 10, 12, 13, 22, 10. I've been replacing the first string with an 11, just to give it a little bit of extra loudness. Like and that body was, to it. Yeah, mm. a little, little more body and yin's, kind of told me about that you know there's mm-hmm. Deering is selling a pack that has 11s um, uh, for the first string so and I think the fifth string too and um, he talked to me about that a little bit but yeah a lot of people ask about or kind of stress themselves out about choosing between a, a flat or a radius fingerboard and you seem like you might be in a good position to to tell people like what do you notice going f- having gone from radius now to flat like was it difficult or what do you think are the pros and cons between those two i didn't think i would notice much of a difference but i think i like radius better i don't want to get like take this neck off because i'm still i haven't made the call on if i want to do a, a, a finger a different fingerboard i mean the, the inlay is kind of messed up on this board so maybe i'll do another fingerboard that's radius i just it's sounding so good right now that i don't want to mess with it and uh i think for thumb position stuff so like when you're playing when you're playing, you know, with your thumb over the on the fifth string, mm. that that makes a difference. You know, if you have a radius board, easier. You think it with makes the it, radius? It makes it easier for sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm not certain if there's really any other pros for me right now for a radius. I, I, even with playing melodic style, like I, I would need to do some comparison um, with it. Yeah. Yeah. What about cons? Is there anything that you prefer about the the flat board? No, I don't think so. Cool. Well, good. I have, I have a radius one. It's nice to know that <laughs> I made I made the right choice. Yeah, you made a good call. Good call. And they're they're both. You know, the neck affects the sound, and so if you have got a good neck, then keep it. <laughs> yeah, it'll be good. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the questions I have. Is there anything? I mean, I know you've done lots of different things in your career, so definitely speak up is is there something we didn't cover that is amusing or or important for people to know about you no I, I, this is <laughs> this has been a good conversation man <laughs> thanks awesome. for having me well definitely give a pitch for like where people can find you okay. and your music and okay. and all that business websites yeah so my you know the main hub is bennettsullivanmusic.com and so that's got all, all the stuff you need to know, the tour dates, the um, the recordings. Um, my Patreon is uh, linked there, and um, there's a bunch of uh, free lessons on there, um, uh, like my lesson archive. So that's all there, too. That's that's the main hub. Follow me okay. on Instagram. I'm growing my Instagram right now. So um, the Bennett Sullivan is my Instagram handle. And that's... Uh Bennett with two N's and two T's. Is that right? Correct. Awesome. All right, Bennett. Well, hey, thanks so much for chatting and hope to run into you sometime soon here. Yeah, man. That would be awesome. Thank you. 
And that's going to do it for this episode, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. The sound clips you heard this episode were The Hound by Bennett Sullivan, Humor-esque by Craig Smith, Think of What You've Done by Ricky Skaggs, Shenandoah Breakdown by Jerry Douglas, Bright Star, which is the title track by the original Broadway cast of that musical, which was by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell, and then a few extra tracks from Bennett Sullivan, Step Inside, Internal Joy, and Open Minds. Thank you once again to Bill Kinsella. He's this episode's Patreon supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself. Get a hold of me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And other than that, all of you, please uh, take care out there and I'll see you next time. Thank you.